So we're going to jump right into this. We started a new series. I started a new series called New Beginnings. And I started this right after the first of the year. Those of you that have been with us, you, you heard me kick this off, and you guys have been with us from, from the start. But, but this series of new beginnings came out of, because of a burden in my life about just starting this, or begin talking about or trying to solve the resolution dilemma. That when you look at it around the first of the year, uh, most people have something in their life that they want to change. And so as a result of that, they, the new year is like... Uh, it's like the time or it's like a catalyst for people to start evaluating their goals and their dreams and their commitments and all those things like that. People start making commitments or resolutions of things in their life that they'd, they'd want to change. But the problem is this. When people make New Year's resolution, it's really not that effective. What statistics tell us is this, is by March, most people are no longer, most people have broken all their New Year's resolutions. They've forgotten about them and all of those other things. And so, so we know this. We know that New Year's resolutions really don't work. And so what we're learning is this is the Bible teaches something totally different. Where New Year's resolutions start with the external and hoping that if you and I make some external changes, it'll finally get to the internal, it'll finally get into us and, and where change happens. But the Bible teaches totally opposite than that. fact is the Bible teaches this, that real change starts on the inside out, that it's an inside job. In other words, this, we don't start with, with, uh, with habits, we start with God. We don't start with behaviors, we start with beliefs. And so it comes out of that burden of mine to communicate this principle that really and truly this series was launched because of, to where we have an understanding that everything in our life is spiritual. And that there's a connection between the spiritual and the physical. That 2014 can be our best year ever if it's our best year spiritually, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we realize. And so with that, we use 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, like a, like a theme verse. And, and I'm just going to tell you, if you've never memorized Scripture, this would be a great start. It would be a great verse. We've been repeating it. We're going to repeat it again next week as we end this series next week. And when we look at new friends and new relationships, and, and that we, you understand that, guess what? Your relationships are spiritual. We're going to understand that next week. But for today, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Here's what the Scripture says. It says, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, in other words, if anyone's a Christian, he or she is a new creation. And here's just great news. And the old is gone. The junk and the stuff of the past, it's gone. The old is gone. Behold, the new has, has come. And so there's a lot of people that, that enter the first of the year, and they begin talking about turning over a new leaf, right? You may hear some people, and they talk about, you know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf in my life. But here's what I've learned. A new life beats a new leaf. Every time. Because it's internal change. It doesn't start with the habits. It starts with God. It doesn't start with the behavior. Start with the beliefs. It's this internal change. And this morning, I'm going to talk about a subject that impacts every one of us. In fact, this is an emotional subject. I'm going to talk to you about new finances. You see, Jesus understood that your money is spiritual. And Jesus talked more about money than any other subject in the New Testament. Fact is, when you look at this and you look at the teachings of Jesus and the sermons that he preached, a third of the sermons that he preached, a third of the parables, dealt with this issue of finances, dealt with this issue of money. And Jesus said that how you and I steward our money, how you and I use our money, how you and I spend our money, allocate our money, is really a reflection of who we are. It's really a reflection of our priorities in life. 
And so when you look at this issue of money in, in our world, in our society, we realize money's really emotional. Like right now, just me bringing that up in church can bring up all kinds of emotions in you. And when you look at this issue of money, you realize that money's emotional. And money can cause all kinds of problems. Fact is, statistics tell us the number one reason for divorce in the U.S. is because of money. Most marital fights are over the issue of money. How are we going to spend it? How are we going to save it? How are we going to use it? Where are we going to put it? All of those other things. The majority of crimes that are committed in the U.S., the root issue is the issue of finances, the issue of money. So this issue of money is just, it's just emotional. And we're going to look at two groups of Scripture, Luke chapter 16, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 is the last book of the Old Testament. You can turn there or click there. And Luke chapter 16 is in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 16, God is, or Jesus is teaching a parable. He's teaching uh, a sermon. And he says, and I tell you, and watch this, verse 9, we're going to understand what this verse means because there's a lot of people I'm learning, they have never been taught what this verse means. They've never understood what this term means. But watch this, verse 9. And he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So in some respects, money's neutral. This would be unrighteous wealth. It's the wealth that you get through a business, a career, a job, your income. So he says, okay, so make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the, earth, in, into the eternal dwellings. So here, here, here's what Jesus is saying, and then we'll move on from this verse. We just got to understand this. Here's what Jesus is saying, that we steward the money, the unrighteous wealth. We steward the money that we get well. And when we steward the money that we get well, and when we're willing to invest it into the kingdom, you are going to, listen, you are going to have a welcoming committee in heaven. And there are going to be people that walk up to you that you have made, that may have never met, that you don't know, and they're going to go, thank you. Thank you for investing in me. Thank you for investing in the, uh, in the kingdom. Because of you, because of your giving, because of your stewardship, I have an eternal dwelling. Do you realize the day is going to come in heaven when people are going to thank you, thank you, thank you, people that you may have never met that lived in other countries and other places in the world because of your giving. And so he goes on, verse 10, and one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. In other words, if you cannot steward little, you will not steward much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also, also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that's your income, you, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one, are despised. That word in the Greek, despise, this is for free. That word despise means to think lightly of, to not honor, or not respect. Or he will be devoted to one, or think lightly of the other. And then he sums it up as only Jesus can do in just one statement. I just need to tell you. You cannot serve God and money. Two principles for us this morning. The first one is this. If we love money, we'll use God. 
If we love money, we will use God. And God doesn't do what we think he should and give us what we want and feel like he doesn't and all this other stuff. We will use him. We love money. What Jesus is saying, we'll use God. Because Jesus says, guess what? You can't serve two masters. Now listen, we may not understand this in the English, but in the Greek, watch this. Let me just read that statement again in verse 13 at the end. He says, okay, so you cannot serve God and money. Here's the interesting thing in the Greek. The word money is really transliterated out to the word mammon. Uh, King James, New King James, New Living. Several translations still use the word mammon. The ESV uses money. Okay? So, but here's the deal. The word money, you cannot serve God in money, is a proper noun. That's strange. Here's why. In Jesus' time, there's an Assyrian god, the god of mammon. And the god of mammon would try to control people's lives through money. See, the goal of the god of mammon was to be able to control people through their, through their money because money is powerful. Money is emotional. And fact is, if you play this all the way out, let me just ask you just real quick. You don't have to ask. This is rhetorical. You don't have to answer out loud. How's the Antichrist going to control a people group in the end time? Money. How do governments try to control money? How do sometimes people try to control it's this issue of money. And so Jesus is saying, here's the deal. You cannot serve the God of mammon and me. Proper noun. I mean, it's just impossible. You will hate the one, love the other. You will despise one and think highly of the other. And we can look in society and we can realize whether it's our government, whether it's families, whether it's communities, that this issue of the love of money, the love of mammon is literally destroying people's lives. Listen, the God of mammon can take priority in your life. It can take the place that is reserved for God without you even knowing it because it's so subtle. See, when you look at this, the, proper, the improper view or the improper attitude of money can destroy your life if you don't have the proper attitude. Jesus talked more about money and more about the use of it because Jesus said it reveals your heart. See, here's the deal about mammon in case you don't know this. Mammon will talk to you. Mammon will talk to you in the mall. Mammon will talk to you in your job. Mammon will try to speak into your life. And you know what mammon will say? Mammon would say, you don't need more of God. You need more of me. Mammon will make promises to you that, you know what? God can only fulfill. God can only make happen. And it's interesting about this issue of mammon. If you're not careful, mammon will promise you. Listen, mammon will promise you security. It's false, but mammon will promise you security. Isn't it interesting? that we have some financial funds that are called securities. See, mammon will promise you. Mammon will promise you some things that only God can, can control or only God can make happen. And we see in our society that this issue of mammon is literally destroying people's lives. And the Proverbs says this, Whoever trusts in riches will fail, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. See, Mammon will tell you things like this. You can have security if you just have enough of me. You just need more money. You just need more stuff. See, our security, listen, in case you don't know this, our security is not in mammon, it is in God. And listen, I've watched economies rise and fall. 
I've pastored long enough. I've been in Houston and watched the oil bust and, and the oil boom. And, and I've watched recessions and depressions, as many of you have. And so we've all watched economies rise and falls. But here's the interesting thing. In every downturn of the economy, I've watched something happen. I've watched the people of God who steward well the resources that he has given them. And it's like they are unaffected. Because they get it. My security and your security isn't in the rise and the fall of a, of a nation. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And so, he said, and, and so he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Writer of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. And Solomon would say this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. The actor Jim Carrey would phrase that verse a different way. Recently in an interview, here's what the actor Jim Carrey said. He said, I wish everyone could be rich and famous and realize it doesn't solve any problems at all. It's okay to have money. It's okay to enjoy wealth. But it's not okay for money to have you. It's okay to have money. It's okay. And you know what? I think, I think you should make as much money as humanly possible. But just steward it well. And invest in the kingdom. See, there's a lot of times the God of mammon will lie to us. And so we start out the new year. And we start making resolutions. I want to get out of debt. And I want to be financially secure. And I want to save more. And I want to spend less. I want to get my finances in order. And all of those other things. And listen, I think those are great things. As long as it's biblical. And as long as it's blessed. Those are great things. So, if you love money, you will use God. Second principle, last principle is this. And if you love God, you'll use money. In other words, you'll see money as a tool. You'll see money as something that you steward for the kingdom. You'll get this and you understand this about the rightful place and the rightful attitude and the rightful view of money and income. That's why Jesus said again in Luke 16, 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he goes on just up front, you cannot serve. Just telling you, you cannot serve God and money. So the way the Bible tells us that we serve the Lord, we honor the Lord with our wealth, is through the tithe. Now listen, if you're new to church, you haven't been in church very long, you don't know what that word means, the, 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 the pure definition of the word tithe means this, a tenth or ten percent. And so what, what the word tells us, what God tells us, is that this is the first fruits are his, the first part of our income is his, uh, it's not ours, it's the first ten percent, and we return it to him, and we honor him with our wealth. And every time we give, and we'll understand that in a few minutes, but every time we do that, we're answering the question of um, who do we love and who do we place our security in and who are we going to believe and are we really going to live by faith? And God says this over and over. He tells us just to honor me with your wealth. So the question this morning is, are you honoring me with wealth? And do you want new finances? And I tell you how you get new finances. You get new finances by honoring with your wealth. In Malachi chapter 3, it's a people group, much like ours. They were consumer Christians. They evaluated everything by what benefit was it to them. They wanted God to be generous with them, but they weren't going to be generous with him. 
And so they, they had this consumer m- mentality that they would operate in such a way that he really wasn't going to be a priority. They were just going to evaluate everything on, is it of any benefit to me? What does it gain me? It's this consumer mindset. So God sends this prophet, the prophet Malachi. And Malachi was like this fiery guy. He was type A. He wasn't very relational. And he would just get up in your grill and tell you exactly how it was. And he didn't worry about it. And so Malachi comes into this people group that is a lot like us today. And he looks at him. It's so interesting. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Here's the first words that Malachi says. And watch this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, stop right there. Why did he say that? Why did he say up front, you just got to know, God doesn't change. You know why? Because they were trying to change God. And so Malachi just wanted to, to level the playing field. Malachi just wanted to get it on the, on the table. And Malachi just wants to say, guess what? In case you're trying to change God, he doesn't change. And so he goes on. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers have have turned aside from my statutes and, and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet, God's saying, guys, you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes? First part of your income, 10% goes to church. Contributions, offerings, is anything over and above that? He said, that's holy. That's mine. And I'm asking you to return it. It's interesting. He says, you're robbing me. He didn't say you're robbing the church. He moves the church out of the whole discussion. You may think you place it in the church's account, and you do place it in the church's account, but it's really his account. He says, guys, I need to tell you, this is between you and me. This isn't between you and fellowship. This isn't between you and a pastor. I need you to know, you're not robbing a church. Man, you're robbing me. Man, you're robbing me. I I get paid twice a month, and I don't know how it works, but the money just magically appears in my checking account just amazing. It's just like magic. It just like appears. And the way I pay bills, I pay bills online. The way I give, the way I tithe, I tithe online. And the first thing I do, because I just believe in this principle so much, is the principle of the first fruits. I mean, I quickly get it out of my account into his account. Because there's so many promises around that. And listen, this last week, I've, in, my, in, my, in my mind, I've been having these discussions, and maybe these discussions in some imaginary way with you. And I've been asking this question. Why would an individual not tithe when it is just so, so clear in Scripture? Well, many times it's because there's some people that just don't believe it's for today. They believe that was Old Testament stuff. They believe that was then. This is now, and I just don't believe it's for today. And listen, I'll be honest with you. I've met some people who disagree with me on this issue of tithing. And they're not bad people. I mean, I really, I don't think they're bad people at all. But they'll tell me, you know what, I just don't believe in tithing. I just don't believe it's New Testament. I just, I just believe, I believe it was for then and not for now. Isn't that what happened to Adam and Eve? When God told Adam and Eve, you can have, all, you can have everything in the garden except for one. That tree, that's mine. It's set apart. You return that to me. And the serpent came along and said, God really say that? That was for then. That's not for now. 
Listen, when, you, when, when people say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't believe it's for today. And I push back and say, well, wait a minute, you understand the principle of tithing was before the law and after the law. Fact is, there's evidence all the way through Scripture that people tithe three to four hundred years prior to the law and after the law. And then someone will push back and say, whoa, wait a minute, Pastor, you may not know this. The word tithe never appears in the New Testament. Now listen, I've got hundreds of hours into researching this subject even before I became a pastor. Can I just tell you this? The word tithe appears eight times in the New Testament. See, that's how blind people can be. Because the God of mammon and emotion will tell you, you know what, tie, the word tie doesn't appear in the New Testament, yet it's in there eight times. And because we feel it's not in there, we don't know if we have to do it. It's in there eight times. The word steal. Only in the New Testament, 11 times. Three of those times are repeats. So really and truly, it's only in the New Testament eight times. So do we say, we don't know if the word, word steal is in the New Testament enough? I mean, only eight times. If it, were, if it was important, it would be in there more. So you know what? We don't believe in that whole stealing thing. The word adultery in the New Testament 20 times, five of those are repeats. So that means 15 times. So we say, you know that whole adultery thing? It doesn't really carry any weight. I mean, it was only in there like 15 times. We don't know if we've got to live by that anymore. We don't even know if God wants us to live like that. It's crazy how some people will think. It's crazy the arguments that people will use. Oh, and can I just tell you this? This is liberal theology. It's happening right now in definition of marriage and sexuality. People are pushing back. Ah, Jesus didn't talk about it enough, so it wasn't that important to Jesus. It's liberal theology. By the way, virgin birth, only two times in the scriptures. Once in the old, once in the new. So then do we say, it's not in there enough. We don't know if we believe in this whole virgin birth deal. Tell you. It's amazing how people can be blind to this. And for those of you that would consider yourself like red-letter Christians... Red letter Christians think, you know, the red letter of the New Testament, the words of Jesus carry more weight than the black letters. You know, maybe you've met some. Maybe you're one of them. See, they, they forget that Jesus wrote it all. It says he is the word, and the word became flesh. But for those of you that are red letter people and, and like the words in red more than the words in black, Matthew 23 is a red letter verse. It's a verse of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says about the subject. He says, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tied mint, mint, dill, and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So here he goes. Here's his statement on tithing, New Testament. These you ought to have done. You ought to have tithed. New Living Translation would say you should tithe. You ought to tithe. Without neglecting justice, mercy, righteousness. You've tithed on all this other stuff, but you don't neglect the other. Now listen, for me, that verse was enough for me. The one who saved me, the one who went to the cross and died for my sins, the one who gave me forgiveness, the one who gave me eternal life, 
told me I should tithe. That is enough for me. That one verse is enough for me. And God says if you'll tithe, and God says if you'll return it to the place where you worship, that I will bless it. Listen, I'm telling you, I really want this for you. I want you to see the blessings of this in your life. And, and, I, and I get this. In, in a conversation, someone can push back and say, well, wait a minute. You're paid to tell us that stuff. You're a pastor. Of course you're going to tell us to give. Listen, can I tell you this? When I met Christ and I started out my Christian life, I didn't tithe. And every time a preacher would talk about money in church, I was one of the ones. His money has no place in church personal. I was the one that got mad. I was the one that got defensive. I was the one that got angry. And you know why? Because he was messing with my God, the God of mammon. And when I came to the place and I understood what scripture taught and I aligned my life with that, it is amazing what God has done in my life. Many of you will come up to Karen and I say, how, how could you guys have ever left Houston, Texas, all that you left, the security and jobs and, and all that stuff, and come to Pueblo, Colorado with the promise, without the promise of income, without the promise of that, and plant a church? I'll tell you how, because of the issue of tithing. When you know that you can trust him with your wealth, when you know that you tr can trust him, you know that he will meet your needs. You want new finances? It's an issue of tithing. So watch this, verse 10, Malachi 3. Bring the full tithe into the, into the storehouse. We'll understand that storehouse church, but he says bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until what? Until there is no more need. Now listen, here's the interesting thing. Verse 10, he starts off and he says, bring the full tithe. Now listen, in the Bible, whenever God talks about giving, he always uses the word bring or return. Because it's his. And you're returning to him what is his. It'd, it'd be like this. Let's say one of you guys asks Pastor Chad, and you tell Pastor Chad, hey, we're, would you play in a golf scramble with us? And Pastor Chad needs a set of clubs, and he knows that I play golf. And so he asks me, he says, hey, is there any way I can borrow your clubs? And i got to play in this scramble. And I say, you go ahead, Pastor Chad. I'm doing the Lord's work and don't have time for golf and all that stuff. But if you got time, you go ahead. That's a joke. See, I can feel the tension in the room. And so, so I let him use my clubs. He goes and plays in this golf scramble. Him and Stephanie, a couple of days after that, Stephanie's his wife, just so we clear that up. And so, so him and Stephanie are in the neighborhood, and they're driving around. And so all of a sudden, Pastor Chad calls me on the cell and says, Hey, Charlie, is there any way Stephanie and I are in the neighborhood? Could we stop by? I'd like to, I'd like to get your clubs back to you. And I said, absolutely. And since Stephanie's with us, why don't you guys come in? Karen, I love hanging out with Stephanie and Chad. And say, why don't you guys come out and just hang out for a while? And so Pastor Chad and Stephanie come into our living room. He has my clubs, and he puts them in front of the living room, and he looks at me, and he gets emotional. And he goes, Charlie, Stephanie and I have been praying. And we want to give you these clubs. They're my clubs. <laughs> I'm like, Pastor Chad, did you get hit in the head with a golf ball when you were out there? Those are my clubs. You are only returning them. 
to me. That's all God asks us to do. You just return to me what is mine, and I'll bless the rest. Listen this morning. If you feel like returning, tithing, God is taking something from you, then that's an indication of the heart, and you are not grateful for what he is doing in your life now. And you're not grateful for what he has given you now. Verse 11, Malachi goes on. He says, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now he starts talking about blessing businesses and blessing all this other stuff. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? So now then, here we come with the consumer-minded mentality you have said you have said it's vain to serve God I'm not going to serve in a ministry and I'm not going to serve the church I'm not going to find a place of ministry I'm just not going to serve you why because what does it benefit me what benefit is it to me because if it's not a benefit to me I'm not doing it and that's what he goes on he said this is how they phrase it what profit of our keeping his charge or walking uh as the morning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil, evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So here's what, here's what consumer-minded Christianity is. Well, we look around. We see, all these, we see all these lost people and they don't know God. And, and it looks like they're getting blessed and they're getting rich. And so that just doesn't seem fair to us. So what profit, what gain is it of ours if we, if we return it to you? So here's what's happening. God was asking for their worst and their best. See, we don't mind giving God our worst. We don't mind giving him our messed up lives, our broken relationships. We don't mind giving him our sin and our prayer requests and our needs list and all this other stuff. See, we're good with that. We don't mind saying, you got to take, take my family, you got to do something with this, or you got to take my sin, or you got to take that decision. And God, we need you to take care of this. And so we don't mind giving him our worst, our sin, but we will not give him our best. And God is saying this, I want your worst and I want your best. See, we're good with giving him our worst, but we're not going to give him anything excellent. We're not going to make him a priority. We're not going to give him our best. Man, when you refuse to give God your worst and your best, it says a lot about you. Priority of your time and priority of your tithe. Listen, hope you know this. There's a difference between spoken value and actual value. If I tell you that I love my family and I'm dedicated to my family, my family has priority in my life, and then you open up my checkbook and you see, my, you, you see how I allocate my money and none of my money is going to my family, it's going all to my toys and my hobbies and, and, and all this other stuff and golf and guns or whatever it is and sports and all this other stuff, and none of the money is going to my family, you would question the actual value. Let me ask you. Would you, be, would you rather be married to someone that's greedy or generous? Would you rather have a close friend that is greedy or generous? Would you rather work for a supervisor or a company, a manager, who is greedy or generous? You see, the people of Malachi, a lot like us, they weren't generous people at all. They were expecting God to be generous with them. And when he wasn't, and he didn't meet their needs the way in which they thought he should, they accused him of some things. 
People of Malachi, a lot like us. God will give you our worst and not our best. But God, we expect you to give us your best. Now listen, I can really tell there's tension in the room. Some of you may be asking, does God want my money? I hate to tell you this. He wants way more than that. He wants your money. He wants your time. He wants your talents. He wants your resources. He wants your mind. He wants your body. He wants your job. He wants your sin. He wants your eternity. He wants all of you. So he said, well, so are you saying a Christian should tithe? I'm not saying that. Jesus said that. The most complete teaching in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Paul is writing into a church, and he says, when you give, you should give cheerfully. You should give sacrificially. You should give regular as you worship, and you should give proportional. And some people would push back. Wait a minute. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 didn't say a percentage. Why is it? It just said sacrificial. I'll tell you why that is. Because the tithe, 10% is the floor and not the ceiling. See, there were things in the Old Testament. Jesus came along. He didn't erase them. He increased it. Do not murder. But I say, if you slander someone, if you gossip about someone, you murder in your heart. Do not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. You find in Scripture, Jesus didn't erase things. He increased it. I'm telling you. Some of you need to go home and you just need to plan out your budget for 2014 with God in mind. And you need to look at your budget and you need to decide, what does this budget say about me? What does it reflect about me? And we may be talking about unrighteous wealth. We may be talking about money. But ultimately, we're talking about an issue of the heart. And when you consider how much to give, you better factor in that it all belongs to him close with this story, a story of Governor Mike Huckabee. When, before Governor Mike Huckabee, Huckabee became the governor, governor of Arkansas and then ran for president of the United States of America, he, he was a pastor of a church in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's a large church. And so he was recently asked this question. He was recently asked, what is the definition of love? And Mike Huckabee says, you know what? I preached on love as a pastor. I've taught on love. I've studied on love. And he says, I thought I knew the definition of love until I met a couple by the name of Delbert and Roberta. He said, Delbert Garrett was a retired pastor from Texas, a retired in Little Rock, Arkansas, so he'd be closer to his family. And his family was in our church. And, and he says, as a result of that, they joined our church. And he said, it was my honor to, to pastor Delbert and Roberta. He said, now, Roberta, uh, we all knew her as Robbie. Even though Roberta was a, her given name, we knew her as Robbie. And they served faithfully in our church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And then, then they got up in years, and they started getting elderly. And then, then Robbie was, was diagnosed with one of the most dreaded diseases. She was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And at first, she would just forget people's names, and she'd forget simple things, and she'd forget places to be and all those other things. But those of you that have walked through with family members and loved ones through the, 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 the disease of Alzheimer's, you know that it's just a horrible disease. And tomorrow's not going to be any better than today. It just keeps getting worse. And Roberta got to the place to where she'd leave a pot of peas on the stove and she'd forget that they were on the stove. And, and if Delbert wasn't there to get them off the stove, she could hurt herself and hurt others and she'd catch the house on fire. And there was a time that Delbert ran a quick errand and 
And he went to the store and he came back and Robbie was walking down the middle of the street and they live on a busy street. And so Mike was talking to Delbert and saying, Delbert, you got to do something. And he says, she's my wife and I'm committed to her and, and i got to care for her. And, and so Mike Huckabee guided him through the process and finally checked Robbie in to an assisted living home. And it broke Delbert's heart. And the disease continually progressed, but Delbert made this commitment. He told the the people that cared for her, that could care, care for her for 24 hours a day, he told them, I will feed my wife three times a day. For three years, Delbert went to the assisted living home. And he fed her breakfast, lunch, and dinner. The disease progressed to the point that she entered into like this catatonic state to where there was no expressions, no smile, no wink, no voice. She couldn't say anything. Last year of her life, she couldn't say a word. The final days of her life, she was in the hospital. And Mike Huckabee was doing hospital visits for his church, and he says, you know, I'm going to go in and I'm going to see how Robbie's doing. He went to Robbie's room. He heard some voices. He said, that's strange. And so he went to her room, and the door was cracked, and he peered in, and he says, when I witnessed that, it's when I changed my definition of love because I saw love lived out. I look in, and there's, there's Delbert over Robbie's bed. He has a bowl of soft food with a spoon, and he'd take the soft food out, and he'd put it up to her lips, and he'd say, come on, sweetheart, take another bite. I love you, baby. You got to keep up your nourishment. Please, one more bite, honey. And out of reflex, she'd take a bite. He'd wipe her chin. He'd get another spoon. He said, Come on, baby. I love you. Come on, baby. One more bite. And Mike says, it went through my mind, what is he getting out of that? No wink, no smile, she can't kiss him, she can't grab his hand, she can't say, Delbert, I love you. Delbert, thank you for being my husband. Delbert, Delbert Garrett, you're a good man. Delbert, I want you to know how honored I am to be your wife. Mike Huckabee said, I saw love lived out. Love is when you give everything you have to give when there's nothing coming back. Nothing. Not a smile, not a verbal affirmation, not a wink, not a hug, nothing. And Jesus said, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, return to me what is mine. If you love me. See, people of Malachi's day and people of our day are asking, well, what if... What if we don't get anything back? What if we don't give, get back from God what we want to get back? 
I know too many people who give up way too quickly on God if he isn't giving them all they think they should have. Greatest picture of love is not what God gives us, but what we give him. And he promises, if you'll return back to me what is mine, I'll bless your socks off. If you love me, feed my sheep. Do you love him? Do you really love him? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?